So just quick refresher, we're obviously working our way up the emotional cup. Remember emotions, what triggers emotion? Any kind of emotion, what triggers emotion? Whether it's hurt, anger, unfulfilled need, bingo. That's right. They are a consequence of relational experiences that we have with people and organizations. Um, and therefore, they're God-given. They're actually the body's way of telling us that there's something that requires attention. And so we've looked at, and, and really, this whole workshop is about gaining not just wisdom about this, but practice. Because believe you me, emotions play out in our lives all the time. And uh, I think part of our growth and maturing as Christians ought to be, obviously, that we can deepen relationships and we can take more risk with relationships, which in all likelihood means that we're going to experience more hurt. But that is the way of the cross. That is the way of love, ultimately. Um, but it's important that we don't get stuck with these painful emotions controlling us and also that we're in a good position to help others. So we've looked at that fundamental primary response of hurt, pain, sadness, disappointment, uh, that is the primary emotional response. And then we looked at anger, secondary, often an angry person, nearly always is a hurting person. It's just anger is sometimes easier to express, less vulnerable. Uh, and then last time we looked at fear. Obviously, anger predominantly about what happened in the past tied to pain. Fear is about anticipating similarly bad things in the future based upon past pain. So we see how pain drives these things. So tonight we're looking at guilt. Guilt. And um, without looking at your notes. So one of the things we talked about in the notes was that there are actually two dimensions to guilt. There's a, a rational dimension to guilt, and there's an emotional dimension to guilt. Affects us in the head and the heart. Why is it important to experience both? That's a question. Just take a moment. Bill, maybe you should sit at a table with somebody else. Huh? Okay. Some, and, and if others arrive for this late hour, we can divide as necessary. But just take a moment at your table. Think about why is it important to experience both mental or rational as well as emotional guilt?
Then we'll do the the different responses. Yeah. Yeah. Feels good. Okay, how are we doing out there? You got an answer? Anyone want to uh, let's let's talk about let's talk about the mental or rational side of guilt. Why why is that important? Or what is what is that talking about really? Yeah, that's right. I've, um, I've broken a commandment. I've done something that breaks the law. I think the example was I drove over the speed limit. That was wrong. Guilty as charged. <laughs> so now we want to justify just a little bit over the speed limit or sometimes a lot more over the speed limit. But there is a reality that... Uh, you know, it's good for us to understand that there are, there is a way to live according to the Christian life, and um, and when we break that rule of life, that we've done something wrong, and um, and what guilt comes from a conscience that is sensitive to that reality. Somebody who is totally disassociated from any sense of conscience is a very dangerous person. They're a sociopath. They have no awareness or concern for the fact that their actions affect other people. So what about the emotional side? Why is the emotional side important? Have you thought about there being an emotional side? Obviously we talk about that in the, in the notes. The emotional side is for me to recognize that when I do something wrong, somebody gets hurt. Because essentially doing wrong means not meeting need or withholding what people need or giving what the, the opposite of what people need. And either God is hurt, well, God is always hurt. And very often, most of the time, people are hurt. Certainly, 
certainly God all the time, people most of the time. And it's really important that I actually get in touch with the fact that my actions hurt people. That helps us, I, I think, actually, because most of us don't want to do that. Would that be fair? We might get into a disagreement as to what is right and wrong, but when we hear that we've hurt somebody, those things tend to fall away more quickly. We can't argue with that. And I'm talking here about generally where we've, we've done something wrong and, um, and we have caused pain. And it's good to think about that sense of, am I in tune with the fact that my actions, my behavior, my words, my silence causes pain to our creator, to our father in heaven, to the spirit who dwells within us, who can be grieved through our dysfunction because of his love. In the same way as when we commit ourselves to love somebody who hurts us, we feel the pain of that sharply. It's a good thing to ponder. Again, you could look them up, but two key verses associated with confession. So confession is the antidote for guilt. Remember, each of these layers of emotion, there is one antidote, one solution that God has prescribed. Comfort is the antidote for pain. Pain always requires comfort. Anger, and we'll kind of look at anger again a little bit later. How do we get rid of anger? Quick pop quiz. How do we get rid of anger out of our cup? Very good point. And so we talked about that, remember, that underneath anger is often pain. And it's important that, particularly if I'm the perpetrator who's caused the pain that this angry person in front of me is expressing, that I comfort that pain. And we'll talk about that a bit more. Uh, but ultimately, the person who is angry, what do they have to do? if they want to get rid of their anger. Anyone ever felt angry? Anyone ever been angry? Anyone going to be angry? It's important that we know what to do with our anger. Because if we kick, kick the cat and, you know, push, put our fist through the door, that is not going to deal with our anger. Anger has to be forgiven. In other words, you've got to let it go. There's no other way. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down. Forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And we do that out of a sense of stewardship. We've been given so much. We've got so much to give away if we understand how much we've been given. But ultimately, I've got to choose to let it go. That is what to forgive. It's a gift. We, you, the debt is canceled. You owe me nothing. That gets rid of our anger. Fear. How do we get fear out of the cup? Love. 
Perfect love casts out all fear. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. So it's the caring involvement, the loving, caring involvement of others that helps us reduce fear. So very often when we share about, talk about, and have people, you know, enter in and care and reassure. And remember, we looked at those mental, emotional, and uh, volitional aspects of fear. When people minister out of love for us, we are less afraid. Hallelujah. That is exactly what God has done. He has addressed every aspect of our being. And fundamentally, that he has come and embraced us, if we allow him to. Quite literally. The love of the Father is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, Paul describes it as. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, deeply loved. We are the beloved this is such a profound necessity in our experience as Christians and as human beings to know that we are loved. And, and all the, the breakdown and dysfunction of society is because of a lack of both awareness and experience of that love. That's what we were created for. Our text next week will be God is love. And we're made in that image. We are made for love. And sadly... Many people don't experience that. Guilt, however, requires confession. Two key verses. First John, chapter 1. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. Remember, he's faithful and he's just, he has to forgive us because of Christ. The price is paid. He's promised, if you, if you confess, I will forgive you. And to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is, isn't that a wonderful promise? Mike, do you see a difference between uh, forgiveness and cleansing? Oh, yes. We're, we're going to talk about this. Um, I mean, there's... <clears throat> It kind of starts to bleed into a little bit um, what we'll do next time, which is shame. Um, and, and we have something called false guilt, which kind of straddles guilt and shame, but is essentially shame. In other words, we do something wrong, and then we translate that into a sense of, now I'm a bad person. I'm a terrible husband. I'm a lousy father because I messed up. And, um, and, and we can be aware that we have hurt people, but we also feel the sense of, um, you know, the stain of sin. <laughs> that somehow we're tainted. We are defective in some way. And the provision of the gospel is, though your sins be as scarlet, they should be as white as snow. As snow. There's, there's a removal of the stain. Along with, uh, you know, along with removing guilt, you say that restitution is part of that? Oh, yeah. We're going to actually walk through the process of a good confession. Absolutely. Yeah. But we, but we, want, to, we want to actually just set, set the foundations for this, understanding the provision God has made for us. His goal is that we walk in freedom of guilt. He is not playing games with us. He doesn't withhold it um, to make us suffer. His promise. No, you confess. I'll forgive you. 
But it's important, as we'll see, that you actually confess. What's the other verse? James 5, 16. Sorry, Carol. Sorry, shout a bit louder. That's right, that's the one. Confess your sins, one to another. And pray for one another, and you shall be healed. So clearly, forgiveness um, and the removal of guilt affects our well-being in all the senses. I mean, healed is the same word as saved, but it's this idea of being made whole. And people who live with guilt, or false guilt, struggle to feel whole. And it, it robs us of life. And the enemy, who is the accuser of the brethren, we'll talk more about that next week, knows that. So what's interesting about that verse, though, is we are called to confess to one another, not just to God. We are products of the Reformation era, and uh, they threw all that Catholic stuff out, confession to a priest. You don't need to do that. You've got direct access to the high priest. And though that was, and still is true, and actually important, I think we lost something. Because there's tremendous power in confession one to another. Of course, we're, we can't be afraid that if I confess, you won't like me. But we are afraid of those things. So this is where, again, relational needs play out. First of those is acceptance. I am called to accept you. Miserable sinner that you are. Because I'm no better. Seriously. Now, sometimes after we've confessed our sins to somebody, we can dilute our confession by doing what? Yes. All of the above. <laughs> we minimize the impact, the level of wrongdoing. In other words, we're trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to come out better than we know we really are. Why do we do that? We are selfish. We care more for ourselves than the pain we've caused another when we do that. We care more about our reputation than your pain. This is a lack of love. This is a lack of freedom. And we're, you know, we're all on this continuum. I'm, I'm not saying that to, um, to judge or discourage. But it does. It means, well, what is the focus? Is my focus on your pain? Or is it on what you think about me? In other words, myself. But the moment we throw in the buts, I'm sorry I did that, but. Um, there are some good buts, but that's, this is not a good but. Because it does, it just dilute, it, it cuts the legs off the confession. And it takes the attention away from the person we're trying to minister to and care about and brings it back onto ourselves very often. To be thorough in our confession, why is it important that we also minister to the hurt caused by our wrongdoing? 
Why is it important to minister to the hurt as well as acknowledge that we were wrong? And in a way, this ties in to some extent into the question I think that Frank was asking. Any thoughts? To heal, yeah. Restoration. Restoration. You see, it paves the way, doesn't it, for for true reconciliation. And uh, reconciliation doesn't mean just the removal of the stain. This is really important to understand when we think about the gospel. God doesn't want us to just not feel guilty. He wants us to feel loved. He wants us to be in communion and union with him in relationship. And the same ought to be true in our human interactions and confessions. The goal is restored unity and communion together, intimacy. And what will help in that is that I communicate, that I understand the pain I caused, and I deeply care about that. Somebody's often said, haven't they, a good sign of how we're doing in the Christian life is how quickly we forgive. But I wonder if it's also tied to how quickly we confess and comfort. Of course, they're all tied, aren't they? Because we are a whole and all of these things are important. And ultimately, they, they play out in this symptomatic stuff of behavior. And our goal, is, our goal in all of this is transform behavior. Behavior that reinforces love, relationship, connection, well-being. This is what righteousness is about, right-relatedness. And all of these symptoms of our painful emotions tend to have an opposite effect. So the goal through confession is not just to get me back in your good books. It ought not to be. That's kind of the child, isn't it, in all of us. I'm sorry. Can I have some ice cream now? Are we good? Children are just so honest, but are we any different? But let's be careful, too, that we're not just, I suppose I've got to forgive you. God tells me to. So through gritted teeth, I pronounce my forgiveness, but I never want to see you again. Is this what God wants? So, oh, um, in your notes, I just want to go through briefly, and then we're going to then we're going to uh, have a bit of fun. We've got another drama skit for you. Two wondrous actors that we managed to get some time with. They came cheap. So let's just look at these notes briefly on uh, characteristics of a good confession, and. Um, Actually, when we taught this in the workplace, we would simplify this a little. We, we have four steps, but we've kind of expanded that here to eight because you're capable of far more. <laughs> you're, a, you're a great crew, has tremendous potential. So this first one is um, just the understanding of the, the scope, the scope of the confession <laughs> ought to have some relevance to the nature of the offense. 
And so where we have caused serious offense, it's important that we don't rush this process and, uh, and certainly don't rush the, the healing process that can be caused by deep trauma in people's lives. We also need to realize who's affected by our, <laughs> this example here of, you know, when you unleash on your dear wife who's sitting beside you in the car because of something that goes wrong. You didn't tell me to turn quick enough. It's your fault we missed the exit. You need to give me more notice. That's kind of the polite rebuke. We've been there a few, We've been there a few times. <laughs> but of course, the kids are in the back and they're observing this. They are affected by this. And where there's insecurity, where there is conflict between parents, that creates tremendous insecurity for children. And so confession needs to, needs to include them. We need to realize the impact of what we have done. We, do we take initiative? Are we somebody who is sensitive to and not self-protective and aware that we've done something? What helps us be aware that we might have done something wrong? Do we get any help in this? Pardon? Our conscience? Yeah. And who helps us with our conscience? <laughs> he who is within us. And, um, you know, the closer we are to the Lord, the, you just quite simply can't get away with as much. I mean, you can ignore, you know, the messages. But, boy, the moment you cross that line, you're aware of it. The Holy Spirit shines his light. You know, God is always speaking, it says in Job. But men do not perceive him. And in this area, particularly, I think, we are a little selective in our hearing to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Frank. Would you say that in the road to developing our hearts, that we're hearing and not responding to? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, that's the condition of the whole world, isn't it? Our hearts are hardened through sin and an unwillingness to repent, an unwillingness to take responsibility for our actions and confess and be broken before the Lord and for his people. Yeah. The more that we give ourselves to that, the harder it gets to own it in the future. That's a dangerous path that we go down. Now, it's a good thing to initiate this process, but that doesn't mean that if we are the one who's been hurt, that we cannot bring that to somebody's attention in an appropriate way. It's just always better if you, if you don't have to be, have it pointed out to you. When you take the initiative, it is, an, it is a form of care. It is a form of concern for that person. And it's deeply impactful, I would suggest then it's important that um, our confession has this emotional dimension to it. Remember, we've caused pain, and so we need to comfort that pain. This is what godly sorrow is about. You know that word sorry, I'm sorry. It's older usage, had that sense of, I'm, I'm feeling a sense of sorrow for what I have done. 
not so much because I look bad, but because somebody has been hurt by my actions. You see, we are so connected as human beings with all God has created. And it's the most natural, and I would say, godly thing when one part hurts and we all hurt with it. I mean, Paul expands some of this in the body of Christ, but I, I think it even goes beyond the body. And God is remaking all things in his son. But that sense of our oneness with rather than separateness from, it's important that we give expression to that. And then being specific, naming the sin. We don't actually like the word as much nowadays, do we? Calling a, a sin a sin. But it ultimately, it needs to be done. And we can use different language, but this is where words like, when I said to you, it was wrong. So it's very specific, the more specific. Those words like, if I've ever done anything to upset you, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Doesn't really land very well because it shows I'm clueless and I don't seem to care either. So being specific, labeling it. Why do we find that hard? If we're honest. No, I hear you. I hear you. Can you give me an example? No, I can't. You don't want to get that specific. Oh, yes. Which is an interesting dynamic, isn't it? <clears throat> when we speak the truth and it seems offensive, what do we do about that? Because we can be truthful, but offensive, hurtful. I think that's why Paul says, you know, truth in love, not just truth. Because truth without love can be very abusive. Well, sure, that's because of the nature of the relationship. You know, when somebody I've, I've trusted and led to my life does something, then the wounds are different from a stranger. Um, but, you know, this is a good thing to think about, is what is most, in, I mean, I know we, we can't have some recent conversation around this, but it's good for us to think about, is, is my goal to be right 
or is my goal for us to be in union? Too much of the history of church is about being right and separating, dividing, and we've given up on the battle for unity. But Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, is Christ divided? Well, I'm not suggesting that, though. What I'm suggesting is we learn, and we'll kind of see some examples, but we learn how to speak the truth in love. And one of the primary ways we do that is, I'm going to get you to reflect on this, is that our focus is more upon vulnerably sharing how we're affected rather than being more judgmental in telling somebody what's wrong with them that's caused that pain. Unless they're asking, unless they're inviting us to say, you know, how might I change? What, what am I missing with you? How might I grow in this role? You know, in other words, asking for specific critical feedback. Most of us don't receive that very well. And it's important that we understand, again, through vulnerability, how our actions have affected people. And I think if we generally concern about the relationship, even if we think what we're trying to communicate is the right thing. The fact that somebody who, who means something to us is hurting and unsettled by this should overrule. But here we have the tension between love and justice and the sense of, you know, what is truth? And how do we pursue that in relationship when we're imperfect? I've got an example, I think. Speak yep. um, loudly. <laughs> I was thinking, Ken, I think you were talking about... But you were talking about uh, when someone had asked for feedback. Was that, was that the instance you were talking about? I had an example when we lived in Austin, a good friend of ours. She's part of a leadership team, and she was working on her growth. And she asked me if I would give her some feedback as to maybe some growth areas. And, and I could think of one in particular and I thought, oh goodness, do I say this to her? I felt really bad, you know, doing this. And, and I thought, well, she's asked for it. <laughs> she's <laughs> I mean, asked for it. She'd asked for it. So um, I did and I said, and I tried to do it in a way of how I would receive that particular behavior that she did, which was she always kind of, if you said you were talking about a situation or something that you'd experienced, she had always had the same experience or um, she didn't let you talk about it. She didn't listen. She didn't wait. She always just came quickly in with, yeah, I've done that or my sister did that or and then it just kind of ended there. So I said to her, you know, sometimes it would be helpful for me, I think, if, if, if you just waited and just listened and asked more questions. Um, and she did, she received it. But I think sometimes, even when people are asking for feedback, uh, there's no guarantee that they'll take it well, for sure. But I think as long as we are maybe speaking about how that behavior affects us 
I don't know if that even speaks to what we're talking about. Was that what you were trying to say? And I, or have I misunderstood? Yes, it, it's the same thing. I mean, I can give an example from uh, another thing that, you know, this, and this is what they have. So if you say someone was interested in a young lady who's actually thinking of dating and with the potential of marriage and then you ask them what's psychologically, he says, I'd like to know what they think. So I started very gently. Yeah. And so it just, I never dealt with it. I just, uh, often wrote and he was offended. And I suppose our relationship is carried on, but I've never, I've never dealt with it. I didn't see a need to deal with it, but right. the therapy, there are examples. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, situations like that happen all the time, don't they? Because we all, pro you know, we receive stuff through our own filters, with our own baggage with a sense of expectation, and I may be looking for something, you say something else, and I take offense. You know, ultimately, these are all signs of our immaturity. But, I mean, all we can do in those moments is invite people to talk about what they're experiencing. I can tell from your reaction that you seem upset. It was not my intention to do that. I'm sorry if I've hurt you, but help me understand why why did that comment affect you like it did? Oh, tell me how, tell me what you're feeling. And so it's a pursuit of intimacy in terms of more deeply knowing that will help me then be in a position to respond better. And it may be a case of saying, well, maybe maybe we're not in a good enough place, or you're not, or whatever, for us to have this conversation honestly. I think it would do more harm to our relationship for us to have the conversation right now based upon how you're responding. And this relationship is too important to me. I would much rather wait. I don't know, find ways of saying that. Because sometimes people, even those closest to us, ask us for feedback, but don't want to hear it. <laughs> it's a good thing to want to hear it, actually, isn't it? I mean, yeah. to ask for and to receive and to be willing to because in a way, it's like, you know, we're all addicted to what we think and believe. And you say something different, and we kind of react to that. And we kick against it. <laughs> However, humility says, well, no, I need to receive something. And my mind needs renewed, and there's, there's more truth to be had. And, and that's an attitude of our heart. That's a kind of a disposition we're invited to grow in. Because the more we are like that, the more we'll be conducive towards relationships and community and love. The world is full of reactive people, but the Lord invites us not to be. Could you want to add something? Or? I think you answered it, but I'll ask the question anyhow, in case I think Tony is not hearing you, but I do it like, um, you go to somebody, you know you've offended them, you approach them, you say, I'm so sorry, could you forgive me for this? But I'm not receptive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, you know, context is everything, and relational context is a big part of that. 
And um, do we protect the relationship? Which doesn't mean we avoid truth. It just means we, we step carefully into that. We have, it's, you know, we have to gauge that. We need some wisdom and sensitivity. You know, this, this whole thing of my inviting people to huddle and walk closely with one or two other believers, there's a lot of resistance to it because we're not used to confessing our sins to one another and we're missing out on the blessing of it. Seriously. But you see, the world is shaping us into a very individualistic, very master of my own destiny. My life is my life. My body is my body. What I do with is, is up to me. And who cares? And yet we're not created to live like that. You know, we are created for community, not just small, but extensive as well. Actions have impact. My, my life is not, you know, no man is an island in that sense. But we like the island because an island feels no pain. A rock does anyway, feels no pain. Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> but yeah, we, we think that's freedom, but it's not. It's a prison sentence. Anyway, um, so <clears throat> take responsibility. Be specific and take responsibility. When I said that, did that, it was wrong of me. And use those words rather than I'm sorry, because I'm sorry is just kind of been a bit cheapened. Oh, I'm sorry. But when I say things, it I was wrong. <laughs> it's hard to put those three words together sometimes in a sentence. <laughs> I was <laughs> Low batteries, yeah. And then when we say that, stop, period, end of sentence. Keep your mouth shut. Don't do what we were talking about earlier to minimize or justify or blame or joke or whatever. And then we have to ask for forgiveness. And wait. Remember, the forgiveness is the other side of it. That's the angry person who's been hurt. That helps them get free from anger. And in releasing forgiveness to you, helps you get rid of a sense of guilt. Now, you can be free from guilt even if they don't forgive you. That's important. But it's also much better in terms of the relationship if they do forgive you. And in doing so, minister to the hurt. Make sure we don't overlook the importance of caring about the impact of our actions, words, and giving words of comfort. So our four steps used to be like, be specific, take responsibility, comfort the hurt, ask for forgiveness. And even the asking forgiveness is, is hard because... Um, we almost don't want to say those words. We almost just want to rather keep quiet and hope it happened. But you see, it's, it's, it's a form of vulnerability, isn't it? Because it's like, will you? Actually, will you give care to me by cancelling the debt? Will you absorb what has happened and not respond in kind? 
And who knows, they may not. But we can't demand it. In fact, if somebody's having trouble forgiving, it may well be an indication of the pain is still too great. And we need to spend a little more time comforting the pain. And praying for the God to, to continue that work as well. So, we can't jump to the, the Bible says you've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. It doesn't work like that. And very often we skip in the church the whole compassion for pain and, and comfort, the need for comfort. We forget about that. But you see, that's where the energy that's driving the anger is coming from. And if we don't deal with that, it's very hard for people to forgive when they're hurting so much and nobody seems to notice or care about it. God does, and he asks us to do the same. So, do you all have access to the scriptures? Yeah. <laughs> right now. No? I just wanted to talk a little bit, there's a question on the back page, about this Matthew 7, 3 to 5. What can we learn from this parable? I just want your tables to ponder what, what are the lessons we learn about this from these verses. Would you like me to read them to you? Sure. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Have we got something out of the passage? <laughs> Too much. All right, let's, uh, let's hear it. Just give us one thing out the table of what you got out of. One principle. Let's start over here. What you got, Linda? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes when we see the log in the person, it's an indication that actually you've got the same log in your own eye. And there's something true about that. You know, we are often most critical in others of the very things that we're, you know, we know are going on in ourselves. So sometimes seeing that can be an indication there's work to be done on yourself. What else? Back table. What do you have? Same thing? Anything different? Right. So one level, having the humility to recognize defects. Is, there, is Jesus saying something more than just that? Obviously, that takes humility. But is it the way he's telling this parable, and he's using exaggeration because it's a form of humor, but it's also a teaching, you know, he's making a point. Why, why is he 
Why is he contrasting the speck with the plank? Here's my thought. Those, those represent the ratios of how much of where you do your work. If you're going to judge anything, judge yourself in proportion to a plank and your neighbor in, in proportion to a speck. It's not primarily your job to judge your neighbor. In fact, the whole passage the context is judge not lest you be judged. You, you want to go down this judging road? <laughs> well, you be careful because, you know, you're up against the judge. And, but I think Jesus is making a really serious point here. It's not yours to judge. In, in most cases, it's not that, you know, we spent a long time on this. It's, it's not that there isn't a place for judgment. Of course there is. But in the, in the context of pointing out defects, your priority ought to be yourself. That takes humility. And when you get into a conflict situation, perhaps the greatest work needs to be done in self-awareness and self-examination rather than what's in front of you. Anything else, Frank? I was just thinking, uh, as a first-aid attendant, I had to learn to take a speck out of someone else's eye. They're, they're very sensitive, but, I mean, it's, you, as you know, everyone has a speck, and they're painful. Can you imagine how painful it is to have a plank or a log in the eye? So someone with a lot of pain is trying to help someone else and probably got a little less pain? How, how useful is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hypocrite's a pretty strong word, isn't it? But it's an accurate reflection, I think, of what Jesus was experiencing and, and the essence of, you know, the ways of things in the religious world is that we're far more ready to deal with the problems out there than we are in here. That's hypocrisy. That's pretty, that's pretty in your face, so to speak. <laughs> Anything else? Anything on this table you honed in on? So I've sometimes expressed this in terms of um, man is both fallen and alone. These are the two profound problems in our world. Um, the problem of aloneness came first in terms of the scriptures, Genesis 2.18. It is not good for man to be alone. And the strength of that statement has to be read in the context of Genesis 1. Everything was good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. And the first not good was aloneness. And God's heart is to remove aloneness. Now, Genesis 3 comes the fall, rebellion, sin, which actually leads to more aloneness and alienation and separation. That's what the prophet says. Your sins have separated you from God. And of course, they do from each other. And that compounds the problem because the more alone we are, the more sinful we become. Potentially. Because we don't thrive in an environment of aloneness. I'm not saying there isn't a space to have time on your own. 
What I'm saying is you're created to live in dependent relationship. And if you're alone, absent, that is absent in your life, it's very hard to thrive. And so the gospel is here to make that possible again. And I think our job is fundamentally to remove the aloneness problem, not the fallenness problem. God has dealt with that through the cross and through the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And what helps us get a hold of that is being less alone, love. <laughs> we're less afraid. We're more courageous. We might even potentially be a little more humble <laughs> the less alone we are and the more oriented we are around connection to God and one another. And so I think, you know, let's spend plank amount of time on removing aloneness in people's lives. That means dealing with the stuff in me that's stopping me drawing near to you through intimacy compared to pointing out what's wrong with you. The Holy Spirit makes a good job of that. Now, of course, you don't take that to an absolute extreme that there's never a place to do that. But the only place you do that is where somebody's asking for it and trusts you. And there's a mutual commitment to something that's understood and reinforced. Like marriage or marriage. <laughs> it's covenant love, you see. That is the safest place. It's, it's the only place God really engages in that work. And you see, when you come to Christ and you're fully accepted, then he starts to find out what needs to change. Because it's not so that you'll be in. You're already in. Now he just wants you to express himself fully. So, I hope that's helpful. Let's take a bit of a break. We've been at this a little while now. So let's take 10 minutes. Well, 12 7.20. Let's be back 7.20 according to Google. Let's stretch our legs, get a drink of water, fresh air. Don't leave because we've got drama coming. Serious drama. Still around the breakfast table, as you can see. So Joey's math project is due tomorrow, and he's just told me that he hasn't even started it. He has been very busy with his church work. That's no excuse. He's known about this project for five weeks. You can't tell me he's been overly busy for five weeks. He needs to be disciplined. If we don't discipline our son now, he's never going to be a good student. I realize discipline is important, but I think he needs some slack. His teacher will probably give him an extension on this homework. I would be very opposed to that. You're just trying to protect him. Of course, he did ask you for help a few weeks ago, and I believe your response was, hmm, I'll try to help you later, but later never came. Don't try to blame me for this mess. If anything, you're responsible. Me? You, yes. I work 10 hours a day. I travel a lot. I can't handle every detail of the kids' lives. When you quit work four years ago, it was with the understanding that you'd handle everything around the house and homework falls into that category. As usual, you've let this slip. Tom. Don't Tom me. I'm sick and tired of things not getting done around the house. 
Last week, I asked you to call an electrician about the plug in the garage, but did you do it? No. The house looks a wreck. We were out of coffee this morning. I sometimes wonder if you're even capable of handling anything. With this, Tom walks out the room. Guys, come on. <laughs> 20 minutes later, Tom comes back into the room. First response. Jill, listen, I'm sorry we fought this morning. I just wish we wouldn't talk about controversial subjects before I leave for work. Is that an up or is that a down? Number two, Jill, I want you to know I really regret arguing with you this morning. I realize I lost my temper, but I wouldn't lose my temper if you wouldn't nag me about issues we've talked about before. For instance, relative to Joey's homework, how many times have we talked about? It started out well. Jill. I know I've said some hurtful things to you this morning, but sometimes that's the only way to get your attention. You get so bullheaded when we disagree. Sometimes the only way to break through is to say something that I admit is tacky. You know, I don't like to raise my voice and yell. That's an immature way to communicate. So I choose my words carefully and deliver them in a controlled and deliberate manner. Listen, honey, I'm sorry about what happened at the breakfast table. I really hate for us to fight. This afternoon, would you have time to drop the car off and get the oil changed? I could pick it up after work. <laughs> no. Oh, you're a tough crowd. Number five, Jill, I'm late for work. Have you seen the AVA report I was working on last night? I left it on my desk, but it's not there. You might have to fax it to me in the office. See you at lunch. Jill, I've got to go to work. Remember, we have lunch today with the Blairs before we try to counsel with them about their marriage problems. <laughs> I guess we'd better try to straighten ours out. About this morning. <clears throat> and number seven. Jill, I'd like to talk to you about what happened this morning. I was very wrong in saying hurtful things to you, particularly when I said what I did about your not being capable. That's not true at all. You do a wonderful job keeping up with a busy household. The truth is, I don't appreciate you enough. My outburst of anger was wrong, and my hurtful words were wrong. I know it must have hurt, and I don't want to hurt you because I love you. Would you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. I know you're still hurting. Please tell me how you're feeling. When you speak that way to me, it makes me feel so demeaned and unimportant. I just want to go back to bed and forget the day. I'm so sorry. I realize that my words are not only wrong, but they're hurtful. I'm going to pray that God will change me in this area. I'd appreciate your help. I probably often say hurtful things to you that I'm not even aware of. Please tell me when I slip. I can't promise I'll never do it again. But I really want to change because I do love you. 
Ding, 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 ding. So what, um, change this microphone. So what was going on in some of the others? So on, on the list at the top of the page, did you, did you hear any of those responses coming out? Yeah. So the first one, sorry we fought. I just wish we wouldn't talk about controversial subjects before I leave for work. What's going on there? Some F? Yeah, a little bit of that. Maybe a little bit of minimizing. Jill, I want you to know, I really regret arguing this morning. I realize I lost my temper, but I wouldn't lose my temper if you wouldn't nag me about issues we've talked about before. Blaming. Blaming. There's, such, there's such a desire, isn't there, to balance this out, to take some of the heat off of us. Jill, I know I said some hurtful things. Sometimes it's the only way to get your attention, though. Don't like to raise my voice. So I chose my words carefully and delivered them in a controlled and deliberate manner. Minimizing big time. All about him. Listen, honey, I'm sorry about what happened at the breakfast table. I really hate for us to fight. This afternoon, would you have time to drop the car off, get the oil changed? I could pick it up after work. <laughs> yeah, very trite and uh, missing, missing altogether. I'm late for work, Jill. Have you seen that report I was working on? I left it on my desk. You might have to fax it to me later. See you at lunch. I mean, that one is just ignoring it altogether. I've got to go. Remember, we have lunch with the Blairs, counseling about their marriage problems. Guess better try to fix ours first. Yeah. What? Well, F. F, yeah, yeah. It's kind of means to an end. Let's get out of the way and let's do this other thing. So Randy and Toy were playing with the soundboard this afternoon and I'm going to have to have words with them. Because <laughs> it wasn't like this this morning. So response number seven, obviously, was a good response because there was good care, good recognition of what he'd done, uh, comfort, inviting her to share more of how she was feeling so he would better understand and offer more, and, and even committed to working on it. So even after he forgave, sorry, Jill forgave Tom, why was it important for Tom to ask how she was feeling? Why was that important, do you think? Yeah, because actually more came out, didn't it? Would it have been appropriate for Jill if he'd not asked to offer to talk about it? Do you ever find yourself doing that saying, do you mind if we talk about this a little bit? Because I don't think you truly understand what's going on. Or I, I think there's more that we need to talk about in this and giving space for that. Where does godly sorrow come in? 
Is there any real repentance without godly sorrow? No. So part of this is recognizing, you know, God is in the midst of this. God is offended by this, not just my wife. So let's kind of let's kind of shift a little bit towards the forgiveness side. So this is what we did a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago. Uh, so kind of flipping over to Jill's side of things now. After she's hearing the good confession in number seven, um, let's think about Jill's attempts at forgiving Tom and how these sound. So response number one. I can't forgive you, Tom. You've done it before, and no doubt you'll do it again. What's wrong with that? Sorry? Anything else? Any other comments? I mean, clearly this is not an isolated incident. There's a pattern here. There's a bit of hopelessness, isn't there? But still. What about this one? Jill, do you, th oh, do you want to read this? You should read this, shouldn't you? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think you need to do this. We need to hear these words out of your lips. Okay. Response two. Do you think you can speak that way to me? Stalk out of the room, come back 20 minutes later, ask forgiveness and think everything is okay? No way. You sinned. Live with it all day. I might talk to you tonight. <laughs> Not so good. You like that one? So what was wrong with that? There you go. Yeah. Actually, I'm hurt. No, it's about time you felt some of this pain. So I'm not ready to uh, forgive you. You need to stew a little bit more. This is not good either. Why is that not good? Well, <laughs> yeah. well then, I mean, ultimately, the, the anger is still in her. Anger is not a good emotion. It's, it's a very important emotion initially, but it's not meant to stay. It's meant to trigger a response so that we deal with it. And for it to linger longer creates the potential for it to become more destructive. Yeah. Response three. Will I forgive you? Well, that depends. The issue of Joey's homework was never resolved. Are you willing to write to his teacher a note to get an extension on the deadline? Maybe this is what you were talking about. Blackmail. <laughs> Blackmail. <laughs> yeah. Well. Where does true repentance actually require some kind of action? Hang on a second. But it's interesting, isn't it? Am I going to withhold my forgiveness until I see that you've reformed? Does God do that with us? Does God do that with us? No. I mean, it's extraordinary what the Lord does. Compared to what we'd rather do. 
Jesus said, unless you forgive from your hearts, how can you have? And we shall not be forgiven. Sure, he's when he's demonstrating the importance of forgiveness, but he himself extends forgiveness to people who don't want it. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. No condition. Response four. I'm so mad at you. How can I forgive you? What's wrong with that? Sure, nobody's ever heard that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, 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 that anger's got some energy to it, hasn't it? And And this is the problem when we, when our focus is the anger and it's real and it feels unfulfilled in some way. But of course. Ultimately, I've got to more vulnerably get in touch with the pain that's driving that and invite that to be healed and cared for. Because that's the key to my release and the anger. But that takes vulnerability. That, this is the path of humility. This takes courage, but it's the way of love. You've got to be willing to let go of that thing that's already crucified. You know, the kind of the false stuff, this, this, this idea I've got of who I am that's constructed out of my ego and my mindset rather than out of a godly communion. This is hard work, isn't it? I wish we just had to believe something and then go to heaven when we die. <laughs> it's far easier. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, for a Tom hearing that, it's an invitation to press into that and say, clearly, my wife's hurting here. Talk to me about that. Response number five. Tom, I forgive you. I really do. And can we spend some time talking about it? I'd like to share with you how deeply your words hurt me when you speak to me in anger. Is this a proper response? It feels like a continuation of the argument. Why do you say that, Linda? Well, she's, she's, she's inviting him to actually listen to what she's feeling. She's acknowledging the fact that he's doing things in anger that hurt her, but she's wanting to take some time to talk about that, I think in a more vulnerable way, inviting him to realize how much his words hurt her. Because that's actually key for all of us changing, I think, is realizing the pain we cause, not just who's right and who's wrong. You know, how do we discipline our son? It's really not about that. <laughs> Well, about being willing to genuinely be present to her and hear how this person is affected by me. 
in my sin. I think this, I think this is a very courageous step because um, he might still be angry. I mean, is he going to react with more anger or with some compassion? But in a way, any reconciliation is going to require somebody to, to run that risk. And hopefully it's reciprocated. Yeah, I think the fact that she's saying, I'd like to share with you how deeply your words hurt me. Um, she is, she's been vulnerable. She's describing, you know, she's not necessarily, I guess she is kind of funny thinking, when you speak to me in anger. <laughs> I guess she is, but um, I think it's, it's a loving thing to do because she, she's focusing on the relationship. She's wanting, she's caring about that. And it's important that she talks about that because that might just get buried if she doesn't. But it's an invitation, isn't it? Yeah. She's not demanding. No. No. Because she's asking, she's saying, can we spend some, she's not <laughs> saying, and we need to speak about this. You know, there's a different tone there, isn't there? She's inviting. The sad part too is that you know when you when you share with your dead wife and your whole story, you had good motive, Jerry. You were concerned for your son. You wanted the best for him. But somehow you got drawn into another another field where you There was no coffee this morning. That's <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate the bike. Seriously. <laughs> the plug in the garage never got fixed. I can't rely on you for anything. Isn't it funny how yeah, we start on something that's a serious issue and all of a sudden we've got a list. <laughs> Far, I'll bring my list out now. Here we go. Yeah. And the last response is just, yes, Tom, I forgive you and I love you. Yeah. So do you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's finish by looking at these. Uh, I think in your notes, you've got these question and answers regarding guilt. Your notes with me. It's on the back. No. It's just that page. No, they're notes. Oh, Oh, here they are. Right. So, yeah, the last page. So, question I have a real problem with impatience. It seems that every other day I offend my wife or children. I've confessed to them a million times. Do I need to keep confessing every time I offend them with my impatience? Sometimes I get tired of confessing. I'm beginning to think even they get weary of hearing it again. It's not the back page. Second back page. The back sheet, front and back. So what would we say to somebody? Done it a million times, I keep doing it. Why do I need to bother? Maybe once a year I'll throw something out there and do a job lot. Does that work? <laughs> it doesn't work. No, good. Now, every act causing pain requires confession. Because otherwise, all those things accumulate. 
They do. One adds into another. And the only hope that I'm going to change is I have, if I have the responsibility to take responsibility, to own it, to care about it, to comfort. And my getting tired of that should cause me to want to stop doing it or to ask for help. So we can't say to somebody, don't care how many times, it needs to be confessed. Recently, I had a situation where someone else wronged me. In the midst of discussing the matter, I said something to him I shouldn't have. My perspective on this is that his offense was a $100 offense. Mine was a $5. He has, yet con- he has not yet confessed to me his big offense, so I'm reluctant to confess my small offense. It just seems unfair for me to have to confess first. Oh, we can all relate to that. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, what's the deal? How do we counsel? What's required? <laughs> and we never really know the true value of our indiscretion or misbehavior, do we? We have our own assessment of it, but we're not always sure the impact of those things. But it it really isn't related to that. If we've done something wrong, we will feel guilty and we need to confess it. Otherwise, the guilt remains, irrespective of the opposing party. And here again, we we go to the cross. We go to Jesus' example. Yeah. And go be reconciled. And we're encouraged to do whatever, yeah, whatever's in our power to 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 be reconciled. That's our responsibility, and we don't withhold that until they make the first move because they're far worse. Years ago, when our children were at home, I had a real temper problem. My outbursts of anger were quite regular. I'm grateful to say God did a deep work in my life in this area. I confessed my sin to God and my wife and have received forgiveness from both. And I have really changed. The last time my daughter visited us, she even commented on how different I am. My question is, now that I've changed, do I still need to confess to my children that my outbursts of anger were wrong? You think that's right? <clears throat> How are the children coping with that and the pain that your outburst caused? Well, yeah, that's what it says. My outbursts of anger were regular <laughs> and clearly they caused pain. And irrespective of being, you see, this is. This is not necessarily for me to get right with God. I can be in right relationship with God. The thing is, am I in right relationship with my daughters? Have I actually talked about when I've become aware of how my actions in the past affected them? And my need to confess is to be reconciled with them and to care about the impact of those things for them and to strengthen and restore that relationship. And they've not, it benefits them to hear the confession against them. Which is simply to say, I agree. 
Because confession isn't just about us and God. It's about the people I've offended. Yeah, I, I offend God when I sin, but I offend people when I hurt them. And so it's important that we take ownership of that. And uh, even though I think that they're seeing God working, that's going to give them hope. But it will be in, infinitely greater when you do take responsibility and demonstrate care. I, I guess I assume that uh, you took care of all those things when you changed. Well, this is the point we're trying to make, Frank, is that um, this is not just about me and God. This is about me and my children, me and people. And not only do I want to be in right relationship, I actually want their hurt to be recognized. I agree with that. But I guess I'm, I'm not fully understanding uh, a part of that. So when you say the offense has happened, it's it happened years ago. It happened asked, years ago yeah, when, when they were younger. No, he didn't. No, no, this, this came later. He has his conversion. He turns to God. He confesses. He, God. He's reconciled with his wife, but his children know nothing. They're seeing a difference. They're recognizing. And sometimes, actually, children will minimize, oh, it wasn't that bad, Dad. You weren't that bad. And I think you've got to press through that because the pain and anger in them is real. And they may need help dealing with that. It's all right. Because this really happened in my own life. And that, you know, when I was angry, I had to go back to my, my daughter and I said, I am so sorry. This was absolutely wrong, you know, as a believer and, and what I believed in. And I, I asked for forgiveness, you know, and, and she did. And time went on. And then there was an incident that came along and uh, my daughter came up with this hurt she experienced in the past. Yeah. Well, where is this coming from? Yeah. There's obviously something that was still there. Yeah. And then I had to. Well, and, and, and remember, a good confession not only is specific, takes responsibility, but it comforts the pain. And we sometimes miss that. Or we don't spend enough time in that place drawing the pain out in order to heal through comfort. And this is about. All parties being healed, all parties and all relationships potentially being strengthened. And uh, yeah, left to themselves, those wounds can be quite deep. Absolutely. And it's incredibly powerful when, in a sense, what they felt is validated. It's not a judgment. It's not a put down. It's, it's, an, it's an expression of care that becomes very transformative for our children and other people's children as we help them do the same. Actually, as we were preparing this, or I was reading through this earlier today, I was reminded of something. And I need to go back to my children and talk about this because, you know, we've moved a lot. And this reminded me of when we moved from Arkansas to Texas. And we all seem to be moving quickly and there's never enough space and that kind of thing. And I, I was convicted today. We left their bikes. We had no room for their bikes. 
we left a table tennis table and we just kind of well it's fine we have no room and I didn't even think about the impact that that had on them and so I want to apologize to them for that because you know we can minimize things and there was another issue actually with our youngest daughter we had a trampoline that we did make room for but we had nowhere to put it when we bought the house that we bought in Austin and we gave it to her friend and I remember not even making a big deal of that but you know they gave up things and and I want to talk to them about that because yeah just <laughs> you know things we actually had a backyard that had a slight slope on it so it's tricky <laughs> yeah, and I remember digging trenches for the trampoline and not realizing there was a sprinkler system under there. <laughs> Breaking the sprinkler system pipe. <laughs> that trampoline's going. <laughs> yeah, some frustration. Some frustration, yeah. yeah. Anyway. The Lord has convicted me about a way in which I offended my spouse 25 years ago. I have confessed it to God and received his forgiveness. Do I need to confess it to my spouse? So, same sort of story. Same... Um, kind of example of the fact that, you know, two people got hurt. How are we seeing the restoration, not just of ourselves, but other people as well? The two people are God and your spouse. And uh, we need to be reconciled to both to the extent that we can be. I have recently felt guilt over some rebellious years I had as a teenager, but both of my parents are deceased. What can I do? Confess to God. Yeah, that's that's very important because, again, he was offended in the rebellion as well. Is there anything else we can do? I think that we can write letters to people who've deceased. I often get people to do this. Um, there's something happens that we communicate something, even, even though they're not alive. Something is kind of removed from us. Yeah. I think, too, this is where James 5 comes in. The people we're journeying with can hear about these things, can hear about the sense of pain that you're feeling as well as that you caused, and can actually minister comfort and forgiveness into your life. That's very powerful. And to cut ourselves off from that source of power is, uh, is sad. I did something years ago that I'm very ashamed of. I've taken all the proper steps regarding confession, and I know that I have been forgiven, but it still haunts me. I can't seem to get over it. What? (laughs) Well, um, no, assume that happened. But but I still feel guilty. I still feel it's, it's holding me back. So, sometimes people struggle to receive forgiveness. Seriously. I mean, the gospel is too good a deal. Yeah. And so we may need to help. And again, this is where a journeyman, this is where a mentor, this is where somebody walking with us is so important. Because the same words they can say and they can impact us through the Spirit differently to our saying it to ourselves. And... Uh, you know, as a priest, you know, to, to pronounce absolution is such a powerful thing. 
you know, God declares it, but having another person declare that over somebody is a wondrous gift. And we can all do that for one another. Now also, you know, Satan's the accuser of the brethren. He brings these things up. And part of it is helping people appropriate truth. <laughs> um, that yes, you are forgiven. Yes, though, there is a struggle and a battle and an accuser. And um, helping people to discern between lies and truth. Another thing is that the guilt might be kept alive because there's still pain. And in all of this, don't underestimate the power of pain to drive all of these secondary emotions. And, and I can sometimes feel, even when I've done something wrong, there's pain that comes to me as well as to the one offended. Because you were made for love. You were created for this. And even in the dysfunction of my rebellion, I am hurt by that. And strange as it may seem, there's sometimes a need to minister to that pain um, within the person to help them truly receive forgiveness. Anyway, good things to think about. Times have gone. So we need to draw a halt. This is a... Um, you know, it's such an important part of the gospel, and sadly, we often see people struggling with guilt. And God doesn't want us to struggle. God wants us to be free. And this is a profound ministry we have to grow in for the sake of others, not just ourselves. Helping to lead people. This is a part of evangelism. This is a part of leading people into fullness of life, discipleship whatever we want to call it, is helping them receive mercy and new life and restoration and forgiveness. Because guilt is real. Guilt is important. Guilt is God-given. But he doesn't want us to perpetually live in that place and be held back by it. So, Lord, we again, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your mercy, Lord. And may, may we um, grow in, in giving good confessions, in taking responsibility, in growing in our humility, Lord, and our vulnerability with one another, in confessing to one another, receiving forgiveness, and walking in newness of life. Lord, deepen this reality among us as a community and let it spill out from us when so many in their family and community relations are, are full of hurt and guilt and shame and all of these things, Lord, which hinder life and not what you desire for us. Um, Lord, let this good news ring out, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.